Well, good morning and welcome to all of you joining us and happy Palm Sunday to all of you here, everybody in Quakertown and all of you joining us online. It's great to have you this morning. As was mentioned, we're going to start back into our Matthew series in a couple of minutes, but I have a brief announcement before that. And that is as vaccinations continue to increase and the restrictions decrease, we're going to be opening things up a little bit more at Calvary Church. And I wanted you to know that because starting next week, the vocalist and band members will not be required to wear face coverings. Now, for your information, teachers, campus communicators, and vocalists have technically never been required to wear face coverings because uh, people that have some hearing impairment, it's real important for them to be able to see people's faces and read lips. I don't have to remind you that in this room and in the larger Calvary community, there's a lot of disagreement concerning about how quickly and what needs to be reopened. We have some people in our community that we love and that love us that wonder why we're taking so long. Let's just open everything up now. We have other people that are much more cautious and they're wondering why we're opening things so quickly. I guess I want you to know that senior leadership team and the elders talk regularly. We monitor what's going on. And our prayer has been and our goal is that we will move together in unity, safety, and faith. So together, let's emphasize the unity, the safety, and the faith piece. All of the band members and vocalists will continue to mask up when they're not on stage, and the expectation is that we will wear masks when we're on campus here as well. Well, that's it for the commercial. Now back to our uh, series on Matthew that we're calling The King. We're moving into the last week of Jesus's earthly life. And just like today is Palm Sunday leading to Good Friday and then to Easter Sunday, Matthew devotes a lot of material to those seven days. In fact, about 30% of Matthew's gospel is about seven days. Think about that, 30% of the material. So that means, you know, 70% is covering, you know, 30 years, uh, 33 years, seven days, 30% of the material. Well, how are we going to look at a lot of that today? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at irony that points to identity. Now, I'm not sure if you're kind of a one that recognizes irony when you're reading, but let me tell you what irony is. Irony is a situation or a statement is really surprising, shocking, or funny because you expected the opposite. Let me give you a couple examples. The Bible talks a lot about honesty, not stealing, you know, earning what you have. Do you realize the number one book shoplifted every year in the United States is the Bible? That's ironic, right? You wouldn't think that the book that talks about honesty is the number one shoplifted book in the year. And here's another one. Pizza Hut used to be the number one purchaser of kale in the world but it wasn't put in anything that you ate. It was used to decorate the buffet uh, with, with, to separate all the entrees. Uh, here's another one. The inventor and the one that launched Match.com, I think his name is uh, Kerwin or something like that, he was trying to get some people to sign up originally. And so he invited all of his friends, even his girlfriend to sign up. His girlfriend left him for some other guy she met on Match.com. That's irony, right? What you expect, kind of the opposite happens. Well, now we're going to look at three slices, three scenes from that last week in Jesus' life 
that are just dripping with irony. What we expect is not what happens, but sometimes we're so used to hearing the stories, we kind of miss the shocking aspects of it. Well, first of all, we're going to look at Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is a giant parade, and so if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 21. Let me read a few verses about the Palm Sunday parade, and we'll look at the irony that's there. Verse 1, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey there with her colt. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on the colt of the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that follow shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and they asked, who is this? Now the first scene, Palm Sunday. It's familiar. It's Palm Sunday morning. You've probably heard the triumphal entry lots of times if you hang out at church. Palm Sunday is about a giant parade. The parade begins in Bethany, just a short, well, actually the parade begins in heaven, but we don't have enough time to talk about that. So the parade begins in Bethany, a short distance from Jerusalem. They kind of make their way up and down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. And as they're walking, crowds begin to gather. Now, Jerusalem was chock full of people this time of year because it was Passover. And the uh, population of Jerusalem would multiply greatly because it was Passover. You know, kind of like Ocean City in the summer versus there's Ocean City in the winter. A giant parade, all these people gathering. They also heard that Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. Remember, he lived in Bethany. And so the parade begins in Bethany where Lazarus, Mary, and Martha live. They're making their way to Jerusalem. Rumors begin to spread. The crowd comes out of Jerusalem. They line the streets, kind of like the Eagle Super Bowl parade, right? It'll be a while before we do that again. Um, Jesus entering Jerusalem. The people are excited. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He's the one that performed all these miracles. Wow, what's going to happen now? Messianic hopes are at a sky-high rate. Notice what they say. Hosanna. You know what Hosanna means? Hosanna is actually a, a Hebrew word. It means save us. Huh. Here's Jesus riding on a donkey as he, save us, son of David. We know they're thinking kingly thoughts, right? Son of David, the Messiah, the king, was going to be one of David's descendants. When they're crying, save us, to the new king who is David's descendant, what do you think they're crying save us from? Not their sin, not their pride, not their arrogance. They want to be saved from the Romans. They want to be saved from being under the boot of Rome, and maybe Jesus is now going to do it. If he can turn water to wine, and he can heal blind eyes, and he can even raise people from the dead, he can certainly defeat some Roman soldiers. 
Oh, yeah. And as the population of Jerusalem would swell at Passover, you can bet the Romans had their attendance swell as well. So into that, Jesus comes. And they seemingly get it right, right? Save us, King Jesus, right? Son of David. Well, where's the irony? Oh, here's the irony. What's he riding into Jerusalem? A conquering king would ride, you know, a Budweiser Clydesdale. A conquering king would ride a really big white horse. A conquering king would be headed to battle. You wouldn't ride a donkey into battle. Kings are, I mean, excuse me, horses are tall and strong and fast. Donkeys are short and stubborn and slow. What king would ever make an entry on a donkey? Well, in the Old Testament, there's no reference to royalty riding donkeys. There's some weird reference all the way back in Genesis, but there is this weird prophecy in Zechariah that says, your king, and I'm guessing people scratch their heads at the irony of the prophecy, when your king comes, he's going to come humble, lowly, riding a donkey. You know what that would be like? Uh, there's a lot of talk about, you know, the royal family in England and all these days. It would kind of be like the queen showing up for a pref- press conference, you know, to talk about all the mess going on with the kids. And, and, she, and she comes out riding a tricycle, right? That kings don't ride donkeys. Royalty doesn't ride tricycles. They come out in pomp and circumstance, not riding something laughable. We miss the irony because it's pretty familiar. Make no mistake, the king on a donkey is not the way anybody would have expected this to go. My guess is people were scratching their head. Maybe some were thinking of the prophecy. Maybe some are trying to put it together. But I'm guessing what they expected and what they're getting wasn't lining up. Matthew's putting together ironies that lead us to the identity. Uh, Let me just point out at this point, make no mistake, Jesus is orchestrating all this stuff, right? He knows what Zechariah wrote. He sends the disciples to get the donkey. He formulates how he's going to enter the city. Jesus is not innocent. He is the one calling the shots this week that will eventually lead to Calvary and to the empty tomb. He's in charge from beginning to end. Well, the second incident that we're going to look at, other things happen the week, um, but the second incident actually happens in a garden. Jesus prays in a garden. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn over to chapter 26. Still the last week, right? But now it's Thursday. Two big things happen on the Thursday. We have Passover, right? He celebrates Passover. But then after Passover, they leave and they go to Gethsemane where Jesus prays. So let me read a few of the verses. Again, a real familiar kind of scene. But let me read to you the passage and let's see if you see the irony. All right, in verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, 
Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. It's not strange that Jesus would pray. You can read through the first 25 chapters of Matthew. Jesus is praying all the time. He gets up early before the other disciples, kind of goes out to be alone, goes up into the mountains, and he prays. He teaches the disciples how to pray. He's encouraging them. Jesus is praying all the time. So that's not strange. Nothing ironic about that. It's not ironic that in the prayer, Jesus calls God my Father. In fact, as you read through Matthew and you read through the other Gospels, that's normally how Jesus addresses God. In fact, Jesus calls God my Father every single time in the Bible. Every time he prays, my father, my father, now one time later, he's not going to call him that, but it's my, nothing ironic about that. And you've got to kind of look in behind that and realize the intimate relationship that Jesus and his father had, right? You know, the Trinity isn't just some cool little thing we think about every once in a while and we check off our theological checklist. No, the Trinity is an eternal reality. God exists as Father, Son, and Spirit forever and ever and ever and ever. There was never a time when there wasn't a Father, Son, and Spirit in loving, in a loving, knowing relationship with each other. Now, I'm guessing if you're married or you ever were married and you're in this room, there are seasons, there are eras, there are times when you're not as close as you once were. Hopefully you get back to that, but you know, they're kind of rough patches and smooth. There was never any of that in the relationship within the Trinity. Jesus and the Father were always accessible, always deferring, always loving, always knowing, perfect access, nothing hidden, perfect transparency, a perfect relationship. Think of like the, you know, maybe the two minutes in your marriage where it was perfect, couldn't have been any better, a minute, uh, just perfect. Now multiply that by eternity, that was Jesus' relationship with his Father and his Spirit forever and ever and ever. So it makes perfect sense. He comes as my Father, and he's enjoying this fellowship and access with his Father. Where's the irony? Well, the irony is Jesus prays that the Father not make him drink the cup. Well, what's the cup? Well, I probably don't have to tell you, there, there are lots of really weird things that people put in cups. I go to Starbucks every morning, and sometimes the line is long, and I listen to really weird stuff be put in cups. Uh, here's a couple I heard this past week. I want a cookie crumble frappuccino. I'm thinking, is that like dessert after, like, what is that? Here's another one. A white chocolate mocha. Here's one from this morning. A cinnamon dolce latte. Like, is this even English? Like, what? So is Jesus saying, Father, I don't want to drink this stuff. I, I mean, it's too syrupy and sweet, right? No, there is stuff in a cup that you, I don't, I don't want to drink any of that. Well, what's in this cup? 
While the cup is often used in the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets, to speak of sin and the consequences. Sin gets poured in the cup, and God, through his prophet, says, uh, that sin doesn't evaporate. That sin doesn't disappear. Because I'm a holy God, that sin will be dealt with. And so the prophets often say, and Babylon will drink the cup of her sin. And Israel has to drink the cup of their turning from God. And all the nations have to drink the cup. And so in a sense, here's the picture, um, the cup is a cup that holds sin. And since God's a holy God, the justice that that sin then requires. Well, Jesus doesn't have any sin, so he doesn't have anything in the cup. Yeah, that's kind of the point. Think about your cup. You have a cup, right? All your pride's in the cup. Every lie you've ever told in the cup. Every time you entertained gossip or spoke words of gossip. Every lustful thought or action. Every word or act of manipulation and exploitation. Every thought or act of racism. Every um, time you abuse someone verbally, physically. Every sin you ever committed goes into your cup. And the Bible makes it pretty plain. Uh, that sin doesn't evaporate. That sin, your cup's going to be dealt with. And in Gethsemane, Jesus sees you and I walk up and pour our cups into his cup. And so our lies and our pride and our lust and our arrogance and our exploitation and racism and gets poured into Jesus' cup. And the entire line of human beings that have ever lived is ahead of us and behind us. And they pour their cup into Jesus' cup. And Jesus in the garden stares into that cup. And he says, uh, my father, I don't want to drink that cup. Not because it's going to taste bad, but because sin separates and alienates. And all of a sudden, the my father is going to disappear in the alienation. And we actually see that. The my father, when Jesus is on the cross, is not how Jesus addresses God. Only time in the Gospels. Jesus quotes Psalm 22. And he addresses God as, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus says, I don't want to drink the cup. Because of the consequences of all that sin will separate me from my father. Sin has to be dealt with. I don't want to pay that debt. I don't want to have to go through it. Take the cup from me. But not my will. Your will be done. It makes no sense, does it? Um, it doesn't even make sense when Jesus talks about prayer, right? 
earlier in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, um, ask and seek and knock. If a child asks for bread, will the father give him a stone? If, if a kid asks for a fish, will the father give him a snake? No. And if your kid comes to you and says, I really don't want to drink that sewage in the cup, you say, fine, don't drink it. Let's give it to the dog, give it to somebody. And Jesus says, I don't want to drink the cup. And he looks to his father. And his father turns his back as Jesus begins to drink the cup of your sin and my sin. The journey hits a low point in Gethsemane as he's moving to Friday. The irony, the king drinking a cup that he doesn't deserve, but he's drinking it for us. Sadly, ironic. One last bit of irony. In fact, the ironies really escalate by the time you get to the cross. You move to the cross in uh, Matthew chapter 27. And let me just read a couple of verses. Uh, you know the crucifixion story. Uh, let me just read a few verses beginning, beginning in 33 of chapter 27. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. They offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. Irony. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. That's why he was crucified. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and, and teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let him rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. You know, I find really strange. I was reminded in a new way this week in reading the Matthew uh, account of Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, when we often talk about the crucifixion or when you see movies that portray, you know, Good Friday and Jesus being crucified, a lot of the emphasis is on the physical trauma and pain, and all that was real, right? Matthew doesn't mention any of that. Matthew doesn't mention anything about blood. Matthew doesn't mention anything about how this went, how, you know, sword, Jesus back. It doesn't say anything about that. Matthew emphasizes the mocking. Matthew emphasizes the rebels and the Jewish leaders alike casting insults and mocking. And in the mocking, do you see the irony? Jesus condemned as king of the Jews. He's not just king of the Jews. He's king of the universe. What irony. Not a failure. A fulfillment. 
if you're the son of God, come down. You remember that echo all the way back from the beginning of Jesus' ministry when the enemy came with the same words, if you're the son of God, turn the stones to bread. If you're the son of God, and now at the end of his ministry, if you're the son of God, just come down off the cross. And maybe the pinnacle of the irony. If you saved others, why do you, you save others? You can't save yourself. You know what? That's exactly right. He did save others. And if he saves himself as he certainly could have, he could not then have saved others. You know, I was thinking this week about some of the miracles Jesus performed. It is incredible, right? turning water to wine, healing blind eyes, feeding 5,000, walking on water, raising people from the dead. You know what I was reminded of this week? I think the greatest miracle is staying on that cross to the very end. I don't know about you. Uh, Whenever I watch a Good Friday scene, right, and I kind of see it, every fiber of my being wants him to come down. I want him to come down and smack some guards with lightning and thunder and say, yeah, how dare you, right? I'm giving you the bread. But if he would have saved himself, he could not have saved us. That's right. That's not irony. That's theology. The king on a cross. The king. Paying a debt that others pay. Kings don't sit under justice. Kings pronounce judgment. But this king takes justice and judgment so we can be forgiven. There are two statements that come up a little later in the passage that show us some of what that week purchased. And again, we can't separate all of Jesus' life, right? It isn't like Christmas is really separated from Good Friday. No, 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 it's one life, right? And so the incarnation and the crucifixion and the resurrection, it's one big story. When Jesus was crucified, we're told that the curtain in the temple was ripped from top to bottom. And in my mind, at least, I kind of picture God taking it and ripping it from the top to the bottom. Now, think about that. Who would have seen that? Who could have seen it? Nobody else is allowed in. And so common people couldn't have seen it. In fact, the temple's nothing but barriers, right? And what's happening with the curtain being ripped, Jesus is saying, yeah, now you can come on in. You don't have to stay in the court of the Gentiles. You don't have to stay in the court of the women. You don't stay in the court of the men. You can come all the way in. Come all the way into the Holy of Holies. But who would have known the curtain got ripped? Only a couple of priests that were allowed in there. Oh yeah, maybe that's why in early Acts, we read when Peter preached, many priests became followers of Jesus. And maybe they then began to tell the other Christians, you you don't know what happened. Let me tell you, on that Good Friday, the curtain that separates the Holy of Holies from... It got ripped, that heavy, it got ripped in two. Now we're beginning to know why. Access, we have access, right? And out of death comes life. And so what happens? The tombs crack open at the earthquake. Now, earthquakes can crack tombs and, you know, make stones fall apart. But only God can bring the dead back to life. 
So what happens in that crazy week of ironies? Those that have no access and are completely alienated from God like you and me now are welcomed all the way in because the ironies point to who Jesus is. And those of us that are dead in our sin and would be forever, the irony is that in Jesus' death, we now have life forever and ever. And just as he is the first fruit of all of us that will follow, so the graves were cracked open on Friday. Sunday morning, Jesus walked out alive, and a bunch of those dead people that were in the tombs, they were alive too, just to show everybody out of this death comes real life. I sure hope we uh, begin to taste a little deeper this year. The ironies of the last week that point to the identity of who Jesus is and what he accomplished for us. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this uh, strange set of scenes that we looked at today. Things that maybe we uh, scratch our heads at and wonder. A king riding a donkey? That makes no sense. But yet a king humbly coming as a servant makes perfect sense when you read the Bible. A king praying, my father, only to be told to drink a cup of alienation makes perfect sense if you understand the story. And the irony of access being granted by alienation and death being swallowed up in life forever. The ironies make perfect sense. Cause us to smile, not just today, but for all eternity. Thank you, Jesus. In return, help us to live for you. Amen.